0: Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes. Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. It is good to be back on the ship, and it's good to see all of you, whether, as Agador Spartacus might say, as usual or for the first time. Right from the moment we started thinking about the new season of this show, I knew I wanted to go to some haunted houses. I grew up in an 1876 Victorian that almost certainly was haunted by somebody or something, even if it was just in my imagination, and I've been fascinated by them ever since. It's also not lost on me that I recently moved into a house, the first house that I have lived in since I was a kid. It makes me wonder about who lived here previously, what their stories were, what their lives were like. Not in a particularly creepy or voyeuristic way, but who knows what elements of their past linger still in my present. This sort of blurring of the line between what is lost, what is waiting to be uncovered, that's what I love about a haunted house story. And boy, oh boy, do we have two really killer haunted houses to visit today. And uh, a third after a fashion. Sarah Gailey is a Hugo Award-winning and best-selling author of speculative fiction, short stories, essays. They're the author of River of Teeth, Magic for Liars, Upright Women Wanted, an incredible comic book series with Boom Studios called Eat the Rich, The Echo Wife, and their new book, Just Like Home, is, well, it's a haunted house story. Vera Crowder has come home to the house that she grew up in, the house where she lived with her mother and her father. She and her mother barely speak now, and her father is long gone. Her father also happens to have been a notorious serial killer. Vera comes home to take care of her ailing mother and starts to discover that things are not exactly as she remembered them, or not exactly as they seemed. Mysterious notes appearing around the house in her father's handwriting, a parasitic artist living in the garden apartment, and an absolutely fascinating riff on what it means to be in a haunted house. This book sank its teeth into me. It is vicious, nasty, and unputdownable. And it turns out it got started from a relatively innocuous place, as I suppose so many great scary stories do.
1: I really don't feel like anyone's going to believe me the more I talk about this. I was taking a grandpa nap on my partner's shoulder because we had started watching a television show, and I'm not capable of staying awake for an entire television show.
0: I know what you mean, yeah. So I
1: just kind of like, you know lean sideways and get a few Z's. (laughs) And according to my partner, I snapped awake, looked her in the eye and said, under the bed is the scariest place in the house. And then put my head back down, went back to sleep. So I woke up for keeps like 20 minutes later, and she was like, hey, quick question. What on earth did that mean? I was like, what did what mean? And she was like, you said under the bed is the scariest place in the house. And I thought about it for a second. I was like, wow, under the bed really is the scariest place in the house. It's the most frightening place in our home. And it's right underneath the place where we're most vulnerable. And that just became kind of the like string in the sugar water that this book formed around. The place we're most vulnerable, the place we go to try and feel safe is also right on top of the scariest place there is. And then the deeper answer for where this book came from is that it's part of this ongoing literary project I'm apparently engaged in of examining from every angle where a person comes from, you know, meaning that in the sense of both where did they originate and what crafted them into the human being that they are. And this book's focus is very much about the people who we love and the people who love us and when they do or don't love us back and how that crafts us into a person made in the image of their affection or lack thereof
0: I mean of course you you know that because you're the genius that you are but all of a sudden (laughs) like all of your work just snap into a new cool focus for me (laughs) "Oh, oh yeah That is what's going on.
1: I don't want to in any way oversell a sense of intentionality (laughs) with that. I did not set out to say, I'm going to examine where people came from. I set out being like, huh, this sounds like a cool story. Wow, it's really taking a lot out of me to write this. Ooh, I'll write a different one. Wow, this is a cool story. Wow, it's taking a lot out of me to write this. And it's only (laughs) in hindsight that I'm like, oh, this is my whole project. So please don't give me credit for (laughs) setting out with this in mind.
0: (laughs) So there's almost dead center in the book, give or take. There is a memory moment where Vera and her dad are fishing. And there's this line about steady unspooling with quick jerks. And I read it and I was like, oh, that's how this book works with information. There's this steady unspooling of information with the occasional quick jerk that unsettles you or grabs you. And I wanted to know how you managed the pace of this
1: book. Oh my goodness. I am so delighted that I accidentally put something in the book that reflects the (laughs) structure of the book. Ooh, Ooh! I just got a little shiver. I mean, the way that I manage the pace of this book is the way I've managed the pace of just about every book I've written, with the exception of the one I'm working on now, which is really intense and intentional outlining up front that is... Designed mm. to measure out the delivery of important information in such a way that I don't end up getting stuck lingering on something that I really like writing about and ignoring the story. the books that I'm writing right now has gotten away from me completely and I am not working with my original outline at all and I can absolutely see as I'm doing it like, oh, this is why you need that outline, Sarah, because <laughs> there's no steady drip of information at all just rolling around in the characters but that's with this book I did that originally with the outline and then this book went through. I want to say three or four heavy, heavy top to bottom rewrites that involved me having to seed through new information. And so I had to approach that kind of like weaving a stitch into an existing pattern, dodging between the existing highlights of information delivery to plant new stuff. I got to tell you, by the time I was on like the fourth draft, I could not have possibly told you what the pace of this book was. (laughs) I could not have identified for the life of me a rhythm in it, but I think I just ended up syncopating information so thoroughly that I managed to like get one solid straight line. One rewrite involved moving a major character death From the end of the book to the beginning of the book, one of the rewrites involved taking a character who had originally been dead and making them alive and present throughout the book. One of the rewrites involved inserting a completely new character and plot line and a new motivation for two major characters. And then there was one more that was taking a character who had been alive in the original draft and having them be dead and completely absent from the narrative. So it was really just taking the book and flipping it inside out and upside down and really seriously doing some significant changes to the plot each time while still trying to hang on to the language and the structure and the pace, (laughs) which is one of the bigger challenges of my career so far.
0: It makes me appreciate the specificity of the language in this book even more. The descriptions get the very beginning of Vera arriving at the house. I found myself thinking of Shirley Jackson and Hill House and the specificity of language about that house and how the house is immediately a character. And I felt that way about this. The house from Jump feels like a character. What was it like writing human and non-human entities in this book?
1: Oh, it was... Fabulous. I had so much fun playing with the question of who is and isn't human because, you know, this is no spoiler Vera's father is a notorious serial killer and he dehumanizes his victims in a way that heavily influences how Vera views people and the world around her. She grows up seeing that some people are people and some people are things and some people are animals. And as an adult she has to, you know, reckon with the question of how much of that she hangs on to and how much of it she rejects and how to reject it and whether she even wants to reject it. And then at the same time, she has this relationship with her childhood home that is a very interpersonal and humanizing relationship. And then her relationship with her mother is very much one that raises questions of am i a human to this woman you know does she see me as as human or does she see me as a thing and i had so much fun with that i had so so much fun with it and i also spent a lot of time reevaluating the world around me through that lens mm. and looking at who does our society and culture treat as human and who do I as a person treat as human and when have I not been treated as human. And it really became a very eye-opening new way to look at things.
0: I mean, I'm always grateful for the nudge to do that, particularly out of a book, to come out of a book and look around at the world and think a little differently, particularly the way that you wrote Vera's dad, was, in the best possible way, it was difficult to know. Something's definitely not right with this guy. Oh, yes, right. He's a serial killer. But he was so not even sympathetic. The phrases that I'm thinking of don't even quite work. And I'm wondering if ultimately this is because so much of this book is being lensed through Vera, or if there's something more to it than that.
1: I mean, you're right on both counts. On a surface level, Vera's father is one of the most sympathetic and likable characters in the story because he is the only person who's ever shown Vera love. Mm -hmm. To her knowledge and understanding, he's the only person who ever treated her the way that a kid should be treated. You know, she grew up in a home with a mother who didn't really treat her like a kid should be treated by their parent. And as children, we seek out and connect to care in a way that doesn't really matter what else that person is doing in their life, right? I know so many friends who have a figure from their childhood who ended up, being discovered to be doing something shady, like dealing drugs or being involved in violence. Mm -hmm. And their memories of that person are very affectionate and their relationship to their understanding of that person is affectionate and loving because that person showed them love. And so I wanted very much to explore the way we attach to people who we wouldn't necessarily consider good, but who we still have that important caring connection to. And so that through Vera's eyes, I think, really colors the way that her father comes across to the reader. And then I also wanted to ask some questions inside the reader's mind about what they need from characters. I get this a lot from readers that they didn't really like anyone in the story because everyone is rolling around in humanity and making bad decisions, making mistakes and being impulsive and selfish. And as I was writing this, I was like, I want to make the reader ask themselves some questions about why they need to like someone. What if the only person you can like in this story is the person who's most objectively monstrous? And what does that mean for you as a reader? How does that change how you experience the story and the characters? It's so much a book that is just me saying, hey, who do we consider a monster? And what does that mean? What is monstrosity? Is it otherness? Is it physical disgust? Is it actions? Is it relationships? Is it internal? Is it the self, a reflection on the self? And I feel like ultimately the answer is to everyone. (laughs) Yeah. It
0: makes me think, too, about the ownership of stories. Vera coming home and realizing her mother has been saving everything and entering into this weird sort of symbiotic, parasitic relationship with these people who are obsessed with serial killers and who are spinning this story in one way. And then we have Vera's lived experience, which doesn't match up with that story, but also doesn't quite It's uncomfortable to say that it feels like the quote-unquote true story, because you're seeing the ways in which Vera has also been warped by it. I was wondering what you were thinking about vis-a-vis the ownership of stories as you were writing this.
1: Oh, my gosh, I think about this so often that I sometimes wonder if I'm turning into a crazy person. <laughs> and it is so gratifying to me to hear someone else being like, "No, no, this is this is worth diving this deep into." Oh yeah, because I think about this all the time. I personally love reading big, extensive write-ups of scammers and people who spin a whole fake story about their life. In part, I think. Because to me, it reads like a horror story, having to keep track of details of a humongous and comprehensive lie. Every time I read those, I have this feeling because I can tell that I'm only getting one perspective on this story Mm -hmm. I mean every single person has a narrative of the self right we all have our story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and that story includes all the justifications for why we had to do the things that we did that we shouldn't have done right like I'm not a bad person even though I did a bad thing yeah we all have that everybody has that regardless of what the scale of your bad thing is a fundamental part of human understanding of the self for most people is I'm pretty much a good person, or like, even if it's not a good person, I'm good overall. This is like something that I've been studying in my research on high control dynamics in cult groups is the way that manipulating people requires interference with an understanding of the self as pretty much good. In order to have an understanding of the self as pretty much good, we have to have that story that we tell ourselves. And so when I read these profiles that are like, here's all the ways in which this person is a bad person and everyone around them thinks so and knows it. I always wonder where the perspective is from the target of the piece of what their story is that they tell about themselves to themselves to justify all these things that they've done, because that would be such a contrast. I want to hear the side where they're like, well, here's why it made sense to me for me to do those things or what I've constructed in hindsight to justify what I did by impulse. And here's how I continue living with myself and thinking of myself as overall good, even though I've done all these things that you can see on paper proof of being really bad. And I just think, who decides what version of that story comes out, you know?
0: Yes. And then what happens... I mean, talk about the ethical quandaries of the thing. What happens when the version of the story that comes out is the one that takes off, that suddenly becomes accepted as the gospel truth, when in reality, it's different versions of the same story?
1: Yeah, yes. I see this in communities so often too, where communities do this sort of immune system response where they identify a bad item and congeal around it and push it out. And in that process so frequently, you get one narrative, it's the narrative that sticks And regardless of a lack of evidence or an abundance of evidence, to the contrary of that story, if it's the story that sticks, it's the story that sticks. And trying to get an alternative story added into that noise is often detrimental to the subject. It's someone saying, well, it didn't happen the way that they're saying it happens. And that adds fuel to the process of expelling the person from the community. And it just makes me wonder about how much we've learned to cling to a single, easily identifiable story for a sense of comfort in our understanding of the world as a place where we can easily navigate between good and bad and danger and safety. I do know how to navigate the world without story. And actually, that's a a big part of the project of my personal life is learning to remove narrative from my navigation of the world and learning to spot the ways that narrative can be used to manipulate our navigation of the world. But I find that because we use story to try and reflect and understand ourselves and each other, I don't think that I can create story without that. I think that humans, especially in the modern age, have a tendency to, as I said, we create a narrative of the self, the story of ourself, and we create stories about other people too. And we have narrative rhythms that we can mm-hmm. get locked into. And once I started learning how to identify when that was happening in myself or in other people, I started noticing how often things go in a direction that they don't have to. I was reflecting on this last night, a colleague of mine, and I had been talking about someone who she worked with a while ago and really did like and had a bad experience with, and it was an understandable bad experience. You know, purely like a professional misalignment. It wasn't like an abuse dynamic or a impropriety thing. It was just we don't work well together. I wouldn't want to have that experience either. But the more we talked, the more this person she had worked with, it became clear was the villain of her story of her career. And she kept circling back to not even this experience, but just him existing in the same industry as her being him inflicting something on her, him being the villain. I wonder about things like that. When we identify the villain of our story, when we identify the hero of our story, When we identify people as side characters for us, we fundamentally minimize their own humanity and independence and unpredictability. And then when things happen outside the scope of that story, we have to either choose between I'm going to frame this in my mind, still in the structure of the narrative that I had, or I'm going to let go of that narrative and let what's happening just be what it is and let the reality I'm experiencing be what it is. And I just, I can't overstate how wild it is once I started seeing that how often I see people choose their story over a more nuanced and complicated reality. And when they choose their story, how quickly things escalate. And if I identify myself as the hero of my personal story, as people often do, I think not out of a sense of narcissism, just out of a sense of need to be good and need to be able to follow a template for how to be good. That's when you end up with people needing to find a way to put themselves in into a moment of triumph or justice or defeat of evil. And that when you pair that with the dehumanization of the person who you've identified as the villain of your story, that's where you end up, like I said, some really frightful behavior of people going, well, there's a the villain. I need to be the hero. So they need to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. I need to defeat them comprehensively. And that's, I think that's where things get a little scary, especially in communities.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about that Joan Didion quote, the Joan Didion quote. Can we tell ourselves stories in order to live? Okay. And I remember reading that essay and being like, hang on, I think everybody has missed the point of this essay. It sounds like she's saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you were recounting your colleague's story, I too have done that in a work experience because it made me feel, it made me feel better, but in the way that eating a candy bar makes you feel better when you're hungry. It doesn't really last. It's just doing something in the short term. And it makes me wonder how as storytellers, we can find alternative ways to help people consider the whole idea of telling stories about their lives, but also what stories they can tell, which I feel like ties into the thing that you were saying of forcing people to interrogate who is human. What does it mean to be human?
1: Yes. I I mean, I do want to, before I accidentally move on from this, like you saying you've done this yourself in a workplace. I have too. I think we all have. Anyone who's worked in an office job has experienced the thing where there's the office bad guy and then finally the office bad guy leaves and everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a utopia. And then a month later, one of the remaining people has morphed into the office bad guy. (laughs) Yep. And and I've been there. And in hindsight, I think I've probably been the office bad guy before. And it just comes from this collective storytelling. So when you say, how can we, as storytellers, find a different way? I have found that the strongest and simplest and most insufferable way is <laughs> something something that a therapist I spoke with gave me, which is that I was getting all worked up about something. And this therapist said, so what's the story here? And I was like, what? And she was like, what's the story that you're telling yourself about this thing you're you're so upset about. And she sort of just made me acknowledge the narrative that I was working in. Which is like, so and so is being mean to me because they're fundamentally bad. And I'm good and have to find a way to make them understand me as good. As opposed to just... We're misunderstanding each other a lot right now, and it hurts to misunderstand and be misunderstood. And that pain and discomfort is what it is. But my job right now isn't to defeat this person. It's to try and find a way to address the misunderstandings. So much less satisfying as a narrative.
2: So much less
1: satisfying, (laughs) but also so much less exhausting in relationships.
0: Yeah, there's something really powerful about that.
1: I find it to be really powerful and ultimately very healing to find ways to move away from the enticement of story.
0: Mm, man, that's a good phrase. <laughs> okay, I w- want to pivot us. I was so excited. Even when I s- just saw the title of this, I was like, oh man, did Sarah Gailey write a-, a haunted house book? What is it about haunted houses that call to people, call to writers, call to readers, call to uh, prospective homebuyers?
1: <laughs> I mean, with prospective homebuyers, I think it's always that this will be a great new start for our family. Yeah. <laughs> uh- <laughs> I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first one is I think that humans whether consciously or unconsciously tend to engage in some level of animism at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that meme about how human beings can pack bond with anything. And when we take our Roomba to the shop, we ask to make sure that we get that same Roomba back (laughs) instead of a replacement. Right. We form attachment and connection with the things around us in a big way. I engage in some pretty distinct animism in my life where I'm like this item, this object, I am in relationship with it. I have responsibilities to it. And I think that's part of it. For me personally, the haunted house appeals because I myself am a haunted house. I live with pretty significant post traumatic stress disorder. And when I first was moving toward diagnosis, I felt like I had, you know, these things had happened to the body that I have to live in that had changed the body in a way that made it a lot harder to live in. Mm-hmm but I can't move out. I can't just go somewhere else. I am stuck in this snail shell of trauma and I carry it around with me everywhere and it affects every moment of my day. And immediately when I was getting this diagnosis was like, oh, I'm just stuck in the haunted house. There's no doors. There's no windows. I just have to live in it. And that immediately gave me affection for haunted houses themselves because, you know, they don't ask to become haunted. Ultimately, a haunted house isn't evil. It's just changed by what's happened to it and in it. And so now I have so much affection for haunted houses because I'm like, yeah, same, bro. It sucks, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, it's not your fault that a guy killed his family inside of you, but now you have ghosts in you. Yeah. How's that? Probably not fun. Oh
0: my God, what an incredible, what an absolutely incredible and pathetic
1: frame. Welcome to every haunted house is your friend now. It really, it makes me feel real tenderness toward them. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I would also make my wall ooze blood if I was you. (laughs) (laughs) You deserve to express that.
0: Ursula Vernon, when she's not in her North Carolina garden or writing her award-winning children's books, writes folk horror and fantasy under the name T. Kingfisher. The Hollow Kind, The Twisted Ones, The Saint of Steel trilogy, Nettle and Bone, just to name a few. Her most recent book is What Moves the Dead, an incredible retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. There's a pretty decent chance, if you're listening to this show, that you're familiar with Poe's story, but you've never read it quite like this. Kingfisher takes us inside the mind of Alex Easton, a retired soldier who flies to their friend Madeline Usher's side when it sounds like she might be dying at her ancestral home in the remote countryside of Ruritania. What they find there is a strange nightmare, a house falling down, strange fungal growths, Madeline sleepwalking, her brother Roderick horrified by some strange nervous condition. It's a fascinating new take on the story, one of my favorite Poe stories. And so naturally, I had to start by asking, why Usher?
2: I think what got me about Usher is that it's so short and that was what surprised me. I I read it when I was a kid because I was a weird kid and my grandmother, in an effort to encourage my love of reading, had gotten me one of those big leather-bound essential author's collections and so I read Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle and I think Jack London and ignored all of the rest of the literary canon. So I'd read like all the Poe short stories when I was 9 which may have warped me a little actually now to think of it but I had not revisited Usher as an adult and a lot of my horror novels are pastiche i suppose or retellings or revisitations of pulp horror that i have read so um the hollow places was inspired by Algernon blackwood's the willows and the twisted ones is arthur Mason's the white people so i was reading old pulp basically going is there anything here that grabs me that i can see a story in And I happened on Usher, and I was like, I haven't reread any Poe in a while. And I read Fall of the House of Usher, and it's obsessed with rotting vegetation and fungus, and it's really short. And they don't explain hardly anything, and the narrator is, frankly, kind of a lousy friend because... Or bad in a crisis, one of the two, because when Madeline Usher rises from the dead, her brother screams, falls down, and the narrator just runs out of the house, which then collapses. Okay, running out of the house was a good thing because the house was collapsing, but I don't even stop to check for a pulse on his friend who, you know, might have just had a bad shock and fainted. He's like, nope, dude is definitely dead. And Madeline Usher is, you know, wandering around, obviously having been buried alive and was clearly not dead. But no, he's just going to run out of the house and not check anybody for a pulse or call a doctor. And I'm like, this guy is terrible at a crisis. And also I wanted to know what was wrong with Madeline Usher because you get buried alive, that is a problem. And so... I started reading about catalepsy, which is what it was diagnosed as at the time. And also fungus. There was just so much about fungus. And I'm like, okay, obviously these two must be linked somehow. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that there's a lot of fungus involved in What Moves the Dead. Because for one thing, the cover has a hair consumed with the mushrooms on it. So you should probably get that going in. I wanted to get in and get the details i am always the person who wants the explanations and to see how the magic trick is done and i realized that as a horror author i should probably embrace and appreciate ambiguity but no i actually kind of hate it i was like nope i want to know exactly why this was happening and get in there and also find out a little bit more about madeline usher who i don't think she even has any lines in poe's book
0: Was it nice having guide rails slash were there any moments where you were like, damn it, Poe, I wanted you to turn left and instead we have to turn right.
2: I love having guide rails. That's part of why I like retelling fairy tales. A lot of my earlier fantasy novels are fairy tale retellings because frankly, plots are hard (laughs) and it's nice to know that, okay, the end of this, the house is destroyed and everybody's dead. Except obviously, you know, the narrator. Again, not a spoiler. Usher came out long enough ago that I think the statute of limitations has lapsed. So the guide rails are nice. Poe spends a lot of time with Roderick Usher making weird, paintings and really gets into that. And I was like, this is a novella. Space is limited. I don't really care about paintings, <laughs> which is ironic because I am actually an illustrator in another life. So I booted an entire painting section because I didn't feel that it was going to add anything to my version anyway.
0: Something that I really loved to your point of you want to know I was struck by how often throughout the book, characters, and also you as the author, if I can make that distinction, are grappling with the human desire for classification. I wanted to know more about that. It delighted me so much because it felt like there were these characters delivering plot information or background information on the one hand, but then there was also you poking at the human need to know.
2: There's a couple elements in this. The protagonist, Alex Easton, is, I suppose, what we would call non-binary now, although I'm not quite sure if that's the most accurate term because Alex Easton has a very distinct gender Their society just happens to have a third one that is used only for soldiers. The problem is that outside of Galatia, which is the tiny made-up European country that Easton is (laughs) from, and Roravia, which is where the book takes place, everyone else knows that this third gender exists, but they haven't necessarily met anyone like this, so they don't all know how to react. Part of it is just, I think, when you do not fit people's established gender binary They are always, I'm guessing, looking for a way to classify you like you should fit in some box. Mm -hmm. And in Alex's case, Alex does fit perfectly well into a box. It's just a very specific third box. Right, I am firmly of the belief that if you are non-binary, you deserve stories where the protagonist is doing things that are not grappling with being non-binary in a harsh world, but rather dealing with houses falling down and things like that. Sometimes you just want to read about a protagonist who is fending off evil mushroom-possessed rabbits. That was part of Easton's. They're just trying to classify what the hell is going on, so... Yeah, there's a lot of, classification is kind of a theme, which I didn't realize until you mentioned something, so thank you.
0: Oh, yeah. This seems like the perfect time to dive into thoughts about fungus, because there is, it seems like there's a lot that didn't even make it onto the page in here. Like, the fictional fungus feels vividly realized, I can see it in my brain, and not just because of the beautiful cover painting, and I'm terrified of it, and I want to know more about it.
2: A lot of it I couldn't put on the page just because the science and the vocabulary isn't there. I don't know if biofilms had even been invented yet or if they'd heard of them, but the big problem for me with the fungus taking over people issue is that the interfaces are really incompatible. So if a cordyceps takes over an ant, it's very sad for the ant, but all it does, it only does one thing, which is pretty much climb to the highest points and s- sit there. and then the mushroom fruits out of the ant. This is obviously a far more complex fungus, but the interface between fungal intelligence, for lack of a better term, and human brains, this is two totally different operating systems. And I had no problem with an intelligent fungus because the thing with fungus is a lot of their cells are sort of undifferentiated. And so if you figure one is the equivalent of a brain cell, then okay, you've got a giant undifferentiated brain, boom, everybody's happy. But I was trying to think about how the fungus would feel, essentially, as it's coming to terms with with trying to control a mammal or a fish. And how would it be to discover that these things are communicating through light impulses, through this weird little globe of liquid set in front? And (laughs) how do you interpret those impulses? You'd need to be a hyper-intelligent fungus just to make sense of it. And this fungus has created biofilms that are overlaying a macroalgae, so it forms all of these layers and crenellations that sort of acts like a brain with electrochemical signaling going through it. So essentially the tarn acts as a big fungus brain, and that's where the fungus gets all its processing power. After that, the fungus is just very smart and is slowly learning how mammals move around and how they send their electrical impulses, and it's just trying to figure out how to do this. And then, my God, they communicate by sort of controlled coughing of air through meat flaps. What the hell? And so I I ended up feeling very sympathetic to the fungus. It's juggling some really complicated stuff.
0: Yeah, I loved how you made me think about my humanity differently, like how my physical corporeal body self works, how it interfaces, because, yeah, I too felt sympathetic to the fungus. I was like, you got your work cut out for you, friend.
2: Honestly, if I'd had another 5,000 words to work with, you have this, this big intelligent thing that is nevertheless innocent, for lack of a better phrase. I mean... A priest would probably say it is devoid of original sin. A priest would also probably say, kill it with fire. (laughs) So at the one hand, I I wish that there had been a better solution for it. But on the other hand, like things would have gone real bad, real fast. And it was one of those, this could go so bad. You know, it it would be like if somebody hands you Skynet, do you try to take care of it and nurture it and teach it to be fine and moral and upstanding or do you go no this thing can make terminators let's just pull the plug now
0: right there is something horrifying i was just flipping back through and the scene towards the end where alex has come in and finds madeline and has this conversation with the fungus with the tarn with va And there is a deep moral question there, truly, of, yes, I think it's probably a good idea to burn this shit to the ground as quickly as possible and then take a very long shower. And also, this thing's talking to me and having a conversation and developing something that maybe looks like emotion... I found myself challenged. I certainly don't envy Alex's position.
2: It is a tough quandary, and I think what they did was not the ethical thing, but probably the practical and the realistically correct, if not morally correct thing. And that's a decision you hate to have to make. And I felt for them having to do it. I think in the moment, the sheer horror of it would probably overwhelm a lot of my finer moral senses. I'd be like, nope, we're just killing it all with fire.
0: I want to talk a little bit about Galatia and pronouns and gender politics. If you don't mind, I'm going to quote you real quick because I just I loved this. But we also have Va and Var, Ka and Kan, and a few others specifically for rocks and God. I loved that. It charmed me so much, and I would love to know more about building that.
2: Well, you know, writers have brains like magpies. We pick up anything shiny and shove it into our nest. The having lots and lots of different pronouns thing, actually, I took Japanese in high school and was very bad at it. I actually have no head for languages at all. I wish I did. I would love to be able to speak other languages language, but I am really terrible at learning other structures. My brain is not wired for it, unfortunately. But one of the things that struck me is that they had different words for counting different kinds of objects, like flat things, Like, sheets of paper literally had different words to count them than people. So uh, I had that sort of in my brain, different words for things that, in English at least, seem straightforward. You know, like, okay, of course, obviously you would use all the same words to count objects. Or obviously you would use only three or four sets of pronouns. Well, no, it's not obvious. So I I was like, okay, what if you just had a bunch of different pronouns? Okay, I can sort of see how that would work. Because, you know, we're fighting a culture war at the moment about pronouns and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of in my head. And of course, I had read Ancillary Justice, where uh, they just use she as the default pronoun instead of he, which was mind-blowing to a lot of people and sort of delightful. And so that was in there, which got me to, you know, okay, you would have a pronoun for inanimate objects like rock. I mean, we have it, but we don't use it just for rocks. Right. And then one for talking to God was like, well, of course you, since no one can, no one necessarily agrees on what pronoun you use for God, we default to he but some people want it to be she and it's like, what if you just had another set that you just used for God? The other chunk of this was a practice in, I want to say the caucuses. It might still be going on, but not so much. And this was a culture where if you were born female, you could just become a sworn man. You would basically take it out and say, yep, I'm a dude now. And lo and behold you are now a dude. <laughs> and it was a very practical decision because... A lot of it is about inheritance law. It's not about gender identity. It's only men can hold property or inherit. And if you are a married woman, if your husband dies, if you have a son, he can have his own household and you're still in your own household with your son. But if you don't have any sons, you have to go live with your in-laws who may not even like you. But if your daughter would just swear to become a son, then... All right, he sets up his own household and you don't have to live with your in laws. So mothers would ask their daughters to become sons to handle the inheritance issues. That was just how it was. And I was like, this is such a practical decision and so wildly different than what I usually saw gender transition handled as in science fiction. So I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking, okay, you would now, in terms of warfare, be considered male. And like, what if you had a society? where soldiers had different pronouns and somebody just walked in one day and said, I would like to be a soldier and have these pronouns. And nobody had ever done the paperwork to say that only men could walk in and do this. So that's more or less how I constructed the Galatian society, which it isn't meant to be a utopia or even, you know, a portrayal of a unadulterated positive so much as it's just, One of these weird workarounds that humans find when you have a immutable societal law, such as only people with these pronouns can become soldiers or only men can inherit property and have a household. Okay, well, why don't we just work around that? and alex doesn't really want to perform most of the roles associated with gender and so is perfectly happy being a soldier and using con con
0: i like that you said the human adaptivity of like okay here's a problem i'm not allowed to do this because they don't have these pronouns what if i had different pronouns and i think probably just because we've been talking about it all of the sudden that has humanized the fungus that much more for me because similarly the fungus is like huh how do i make this work uh Uh, Well, I'll just try doing this. There is a problem-solving thing about it all.
2: Yeah, and in fact, Madeline Usher uses the pronouns to refer to a child when talking Mm -hmm. about the fungus, and it honestly creeps Easton the hell out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too! This is, this is not okay. In fact, our sensitivity reader on it said that they actually liked that at one point Alex was just like noping out of the pronouns for the fungus. It's just like, I am not referring to that thing as a child. That's just creepy as hell. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Speaking of creepy, this is not your first haunted house book. What is it about haunted houses for you?
2: Classic. They're like one of the great settings. It's this place that you are in and you are sort of exploring and if it's a house you know well then it's familiar but then it starts to become unfamiliar so it's sort of like the uncanny valley applied to housing I guess. There's something very creepy about this is home, this is the place I go to feel safe and it's not safe and something bad is happening. You're balancing the issue of the scary thing is localized and in one place along with you can't leave. Mm -hmm. Because the thing in horror novels, of course, is always figuring out why the protagonist doesn't just go say, nope, I'm out of here and leave. And you have to come up with reasons why they stay in this horrible, terrible situation. And a lot of horror, certainly a lot of my horror, there is an economic anxiety of if I leave, here i have nowhere to go i will become homeless if i do not stay and deal with this Mm -hmm. thing i can't financially leave and the balancing act between at what point does no i don't care it is safer to be out there than it is to be in here where's the tipping point there
0: i like that that even comes through in this With the ushers where they're sort of like, what else are we going to do? It's our family estate. She's not feeling well. Of course we're not going to leave. It makes just enough sense, even as weirder and weirder stuff keeps happening.
2: And people will come up with endless excuses not to leave a situation, even as it's getting worse and worse. That's just how we're wired. The upheaval of moving away from what you know is big and scary, and it's easy to put that off and keep putting that off until you have put it off too long and now you're in deep shit. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. I mentioned earlier that I grew up in an old Victorian house. That house happened to be in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and so I grew up near one of the most famous haunted houses in the country. Not haunted houses like the Winchester Mystery House haunted houses, but haunted houses like the Halloween attraction. Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia was once the most famous and expensive prison in the world. Slick Willie Sutton was there, Al Capone was there. Today, it is more or less a ruin crumbling cell blocks, empty guard towers, but it still retains this imposing facade, this incredible grand architecture. It's now a historic site. A nonprofit organization runs it, focusing on the history of incarceration. But they also put together one of the scariest haunted houses in the country. I was terrified of Eastern State when I was a kid. I went to the haunted house once. It was truly a scarring experience in the best possible way. And when I started thinking about who I wanted to talk to to wrap up this episode, to bring a slightly different insight on haunted houses, I reached out to the folks at Eastern State and spoke with Brett Bertolino, Eastern State's Vice President Director of Operations. He had some fascinating things to say about why he thinks people keep coming back to haunted houses and also how Eastern State is changing up and broadening what they do every Halloween.
3: Halloween events, haunted houses, give people the opportunity to go into a fantasy world where at the end of the day, you know that you are safe, but you can live in this reality where you are facing your fears, where you're in these high adrenaline situations that you typically wouldn't get to experience in a safe way. We see folks come to haunted houses and everybody always focuses on the scare. And of course you cannot have a haunted house without good scares. But in my mind, the haunted house is not only about scares. And most people come to haunted houses and they're looking to have a good time. They're looking to have fun with their friends and family. They're looking to be scared and they're looking for some type of a release. When you step into Eastern State Penitentiary for Halloween nights, you're leaving our chaotic world behind and you're in this world That is like no other and so uh, you know haunted houses are a moment to have that adrenaline rush to let out these really loud screams which i think is you know it's so great we love hearing those screams those screams are like music to our ears because it means that we're doing a great job scaring folks and entertaining folks we've been doing this for over 30 years at this point as an organization and so we have folks that came to very early halloween events that are bringing their kids. And it really is this tradition in Philadelphia. But the reason why I think it's so successful is we did not keep this haunted house Halloween product stagnant. Over the years, we've really decided that the way to make this event successful is to continually see what is appealing to people at that time, and to continue to change our event so that it fits with what people want, still in the framework of a Halloween event. And I think that in 2022, Folks don't want to just go to a haunted house experience and, you know, pull up, get in line, see a haunted house and leave. 10, 15 years ago, you went to a haunted house. At the end of it, you bought some snacks and you left. Now that's not what visitors want anymore. They want to get out of that haunted house. They want to have a themed cocktail. They want to have a themed food item. They want an entire evening of entertainment. It's a great way after you experience some haunted houses For you to go and the environment, the story, the experience continues, but it gives you a chance to kind of have a little bit of a quieter moment. So that's really kind of the direction that we've been going recently. And we found that it really resonates with our visitors. And that is one of the reasons why we decided to change our Halloween event so you can go to a haunted house and then you can go to one of our theme bars and lounges. You can go to the haunted house and you can take a history tour. You can go to the haunted house and you can roast s'mores and hear ghost stories. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier, our Halloween event is a tradition in Philadelphia. And we are used to seeing people bringing younger people in their family, people that hear their older brothers and sisters going, they want to try it themselves. And so we see them coming and Maybe they do one haunted house the first year and they're too scared. And then the next year they come back, they're going to try two more. So it's really exciting for us to have an environment where people that don't want the scare can come and start trying it. And so it really has been a nice transition for us to include some more experiences that are not just haunted houses.
0: Well, if you'll excuse me, I just heard something strange in my attic and I'm the only person home. And so it seems like it's probably a good idea for me to go investigate. Maybe it's a ghost. Maybe it's a murderer. Maybe it's a strange fungal hair or something. I'm sure this will be fine. I'm not too worried about it. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Daniel Lancioni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at Lithub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.